This week's Escape Pod is brought to you by Audible.com. More details after the story. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audible.com slash escapepodsff. Escape Pod 190 March 12th, 2009 Today's story, Origin Story by Tim Pratt. Hello, and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Steve Ely. This week I've got comics and superheroes on my mind. The Watchmen movie just came out, and I've just reread the book. If you haven't read it, I'd give it several thumbs up. All the praise you've heard is deserved. The question it looks at from several angles, the question that changed the face of comics, is... How crazy would you have to be to put on a costume and take a silly name and declare yourself the protector of those less extraordinary than you? And if by some chance you succeeded, what are the consequences of that hubris? In that vein, this week we present Origin Story by Tim Pratt. Mr. Pratt lives in California with his wife, the author Heather Shaw, and their son River. His work has appeared on Escape Pod and Podcastle many times, including the Hugo Award-winning story Impossible Dreams. He's the author of The Strange Adventures of Ranger Girl and also the Marla Mason series of urban fantasy novels. The latest, Spell Games, has just come out. Today's story, I'm proud to say, is an Escape Pod original. Tim took a good guess at my sensibilities and decided to send it here first, for which he has my sincere thanks. So get ready to dedicate yourself to the lifelong pursuit of physical and mental perfection in half an hour or so. It's story time. Origin Story by Tim Pratt My Confession Right. You're recording this? I bet you'd like me to talk about my brother first. It's as good a place to begin as any. When he started out... My brother Reggie was just an acrobat, you know? Yeah, Reggie. There are a lot of Reginalds in this country. That's not going to help you much. And anyway, maybe I'm lying about his name. Anyway, Reggie and I came from a long line of athletes. Mom was a national ice skating champ back in the day, and Dad was an Olympic hurdler who took a silver the first year he competed and managed to qualify for the next two games, though he didn't medal. You can write that down if you want, though I'm lying about the specific sports. I don't want to make this too easy for you. I'm just trying to give you the general idea. I qualified for the men's Olympic gymnastics squad when I was 16, but my little brother never tried out at all, never competed beyond the state level on his high school track and field team. By the time he was 11 or 12, he'd already figured out what he wanted to do with his life. So he started pretending to be a little clumsier than he was, a little slower, so nobody would suspect his secret identity. He didn't act like he was lousy at sports. Reggie was too arrogant to act like a klutz even as a preteen. He just held himself back a little, and never even broke a state record in anything but the long jump. He never much liked playing on teams— being dependent on someone else's abilities. That's why he always said no when he got invited to join those groups, the New Knights and the Vindicators and the League of the Mighty. Reggie's always been a solo act. He didn't call himself the Aerialist at first. The newspapers came up with that later. 
He called himself Kid Kangaroo, of all things, because of the jumping from rooftop to rooftop. Even though I made fun of him, called him Joey, made jokes about dingoes. Nobody knows his secret identity but me, and I only found out because I snuck into the treehouse one night to smoke a cigarette and found him changing out of his leotard and tights and domino mask. He was only fifteen. I still remember what he said. Don't tell anyone. If my identity is discovered, you and Mom and Dad could be used against me. The whole town was buzzing about the vigilante who'd beat up a liquor store robber and a bunch of muggers, and who'd left a serial burglar tied up for the cops. But I couldn't believe it was my brother. He didn't even have his driver's license yet. It pissed me off that he was doing that stuff, two years younger than me and already famous, albeit anonymously. I told him his secret was safe with me, though. We were brothers, after all. He sort of reached out to me, to see if I wanted to come along on patrol, and it's not like I was a slouch in the physical prowess department, though since I'd taken up smoking, I wasn't as good as I used to be. But I had too much pride to play the faithful companion. I was also secretly afraid I couldn't keep up. Even back then, the stuff Reggie could do, it was beyond the beyond. He was probably the greatest natural athlete ever born, and if he hadn't watched so many detective movies and read so many comic books, he might have gone into pro sports and become a millionaire. Instead, he decided to fight crime, and still became a millionaire. His luck always ran hot. There was nothing alien or supernatural about him, not to start with. Reggie was just badass. He could do a standing backflip not too long after he could walk. You heard about that German kid born a few years back? When he was four years old, he could lift six times the weight of a normal boy his age? I think Reggie must be something like that, a genetic freak, stronger and faster than normal. He's pretty smart, too. Not as smart as me, though. At least I got the edge in something. I worried about Reggie at first, but it wasn't long before I realized how well he could handle himself. His vigilante activities started making the local news, then the regional, finally national. When he saved our senator from getting assassinated, came somersaulting down from the stage and blocked the bullet with his own Kevlar-clad body? That's when the endorsement deals started. I came home from college that summer. I got into school on a sports scholarship and asked Reggie if he was really going to let his picture appear on a cereal box, if he was going to fight crime in a pair of sneakers with a logo on the side. He shrugged and said he had to make a living somehow, and it was better than hiring himself out as a bodyguard or going on the underground ultimate fighting circuit. He asked me to help him figure out some investments, and he did all right for himself, and gave me a little cut too, helped me pay for law school. Those two years when the aerialist disappeared from view? I was in law school by then, and Reggie was in college, on an academic scholarship, pretending he didn't do sports at all anymore. He did a study abroad trip in Asia, and just decided to stay there. He found some holy men to train with, and he was the first and only Westerner to learn the art of sky fighting, the stuff only the leaping monks of the Temple of the Moon can do. That's when he learned to fly, only it wasn't really flying, just being able to jump incredibly far and sort of ignore gravity aside for a few seconds. Long enough to make a difference, and to really unnerve his enemies. When Reggie got back from the trip, he told me some of the monks could actually levitate, but he couldn't master it. He could never sufficiently clear his mind. 
I think the weight of worrying about the world held him down. Reggie's comeback was huge, especially when he moved to the city and took on organized crime. Reggie had the classic costume by then, the black and white checkered tights, the black and white mask. He beat the crap out of the mob and started attracting the notice of superhero teams. And supervillains. He didn't have much use for the other superheroes, at least not the ones who got their powers from being exposed to toxic waste or through laboratory mishaps or because they found some freaky old mystical artifact. Reggie always said you shouldn't have power unless you'd earned it, and he spent hours every week in the gym earning his. He loved the supervillains, though. Finally, a real challenge. After he kicked Killsaw in the face and knocked him unconscious on the roof of the Mannheim building, even the scariest villains started to take him seriously. And he made lots of money by taking their possessions and using them to fund his operation. The cops do it all the time, he said. Asset forfeiture, when they seize cars and cash from drug dealers and use the money to buy more guns and pay more cops. Reggie was just following in the footsteps of legitimate law enforcement. As for me, I got my law degree, set up a practice back in our hometown. I was pretty well known around there from the Olympics and all, so it was easy to get clients. I married my college sweetheart. We had a couple of kids, bought a house. The kids loved their Uncle Reggie. Whenever he visited, it was like Christmas, gifts and trips to the circus and all the cotton candy they could eat. As far as my family knew, Reggie was a dreamer who'd lucked into some money in the stock market and lived a life of aimless leisure in the city. Those were pretty good years, for all of us. But by the time Reggie was in his thirties, he had to slow down. Even his amazing physique was beginning to show wear and tear. He had some super science buddies and started using a few of their gadgets here and there. A telescoping staff, rings with little stun guns inside so he could still knock guys unconscious with a punch. It was a weird time. You remember he wore that psychedelic suit for a while? The one that could hypnotize people if he did a few cartwheels while they watched? He had springs in his boots and that silly short cape and even a sidekick for a summer. Remember the hurdler? That kid came to his senses and went back to school after the first time he got kidnapped by a villain and used for bait, thank God. But even the gimmicks couldn't help Reggie when it came to all the leaping and jumping from fire escapes and rooftops, and he knew eventually he'd blow out his knee, and that would be it for his crime-fighting career. I went to visit him, and he was all dark and brooding, not like the Reggie I used to know. He told me he'd started to carry a gun, and was afraid one of these times he'd have to use it. What about your code, I said, to never use a gun? He said, codes change. Why don't you retire, I said, or find some orphan gymnast and teach him. Let him take over the mantle of the aerialist. Reggie said, I am the aerialist. I'm not anything else. I don't know how to be anything else. But I've got some ideas. Hmm? Oh, that was about 20 years ago. His idea was to go to the military. Turns out he'd done some black ops stuff for them. Deep behind enemy lines operations, espionage shit. He'd made some contacts, including some guys in the Advanced Research and Development Labs, and he got his hands on some scary drugs, things that amped up his metabolism, increased his ability to recover from injury, made him impervious to pain. The drugs had mental effects, too, but Reggie thought the price was worth it. He got the shakes and blurry vision, and he couldn't sleep, 
but the worst part was the rage blackouts. He'd wake up surrounded by unconscious bodies and not even remember what crime he'd been foiling. That was the year he switched to the all-black costume, the one with the leather, and the year he first killed a criminal. Those were dark days. He'd always been this shining beacon of the American can-do spirit, but it seemed like everything got grittier in those days. After I heard about the ne'er-do-well's murder, Reggie said it was an execution, but when the executioner is just some guy wearing tights, I say it's murder, even if the guy is my brother. I went to see him. He was drinking heavily, ranting about how the city was going to hell, everything was grimier than it used to be, the sun didn't seem to shine as brightly, nobody cared about their fellow man, and a hard city needed a harder protector. I said, lightly, maybe it was the drugs talking. He told me to get lost. I was pretty pissed. We didn't talk much for the next six or seven years. I kept up with Reggie's exploits because he was still family. I worried about him in the months he spent as a fugitive after he killed another criminal, in front of witnesses this time so he couldn't get away with claiming self-defense. I cheered when he saved all those hostages in the Middle East, including the president's niece, and got a full presidential pardon. But it was a couple of years later before he came to see me. My wife was visiting her mom with the kids, and I'd gone up to our cabin to do some fishing and enjoy the quiet. I was out on the dock when I saw lights in the sky, and a thing like a spinning top covered in sparklers came down and landed on the lawn. I thought it was aliens. Reggie had hinted over the years that there really were aliens in other dimensions and stuff like that, and I couldn't decide whether to run or say, Welcome to Earth. But the ramp came down, and it was Reggie inside, and that UFO was the airship. You've probably seen the toy version with the aerialist action figure? They were big a couple of Christmases ago. Reggie had been doing a job for the government in Asia when he found the wreckage of a UFO. The dying telepathic alien bounty hunter inside instantly recognized Reggie as a kindred spirit, a fighter for justice, and gave all his alien technology to my brother. That's Reggie's story, anyway, but I wonder. Anyway, the stuff Reggie got from the alien made his gimmicky old tech look laughable. He had little anti-gravity modules sewn all over his costume, so he could literally fly, finally. Boots that enabled him to slice sideways through dimensions. Gloves that let him slow time to a crawl. And, of course, the airship, which could do all sorts of improbable things to light speed, arriving at its destination seconds before it even left its point of origin. And, he said, he was totally detoxed, and he was really, really sorry. We hugged. We were brothers, like I said. Family. You forgive, even if you can't really forget. Those were the years when Reggie became a god, more or less. People even called him that, a new god. He didn't join up with the Watchers in the Sky, but he became an adjunct member and spent time in their orbital space station. He was in the forefront of the group that deflected Ragnar the sentient asteroid from destroying the Earth, and he bested the Chthonic Jinn in single combat, postponing the coming of the terrible darkness for another thousand years. We got close again, too, and eventually he told me he didn't even need the boots, the gloves, the anti-grav modules anymore. He'd put that stuff in storage in his basement lair. 
The alien technology had incorporated itself into his body, nanomachines and strange radiations combining to give him all those powers naturally. You'd think the alien bounty hunter would have warned him about those side effects. Since the technology was part of his body now, he was even faster, stronger, more unstoppable than he'd been just wearing them. Everything came more naturally. And he was probably immortal. I was in my fifties then, but Reggie still looked about thirty. He was beginning to think he'd always look thirty. I was jealous. Pretty jealous. But I loved him, and it was good to see him healthy again, even if it was alien technology-induced health. And besides, I knew I had a better life than Reggie did. I had a gorgeous wife, a son in college on a basketball scholarship, a daughter who was a terror at field hockey, a nice house, a vacation cabin, everything I'd ever wanted. No loneliness. Reggie was always lonely. That's why he kicked so much ass, to distract himself. Reggie had chosen to fight for justice instead of having a life of his own, a decision he'd made when he was twelve years old. But twelve years old is just too young to make a choice like that and Reggie was too stubborn to ever change his mind. That's how it is now. Reggie, the aerialist, fighting the good fight, just like he always did and always will, forever. Nothing can stop him. Oh, sure, I can wait. Go talk to your man. He looks pretty anxious. <laughs> Let me guess. Even with my DNA and my fingerprints, you can't find a record of me anywhere, so knowing the aerialist is my brother doesn't help you figure out his secret identity. Frustrating, isn't it? How does a guy like me, a lawyer with a family, leave no trace at all in the official records? How is it I'm a ghost in your machines? Easy. I don't exist in this continuity. Reggie fought the time bandit one too many times and the bastard trying to erase my mom and dad from history to keep Reggie from ever being born. It pretty much worked, too. Reggie and I only survived the temporal attack because we were stuck in an extra-dimensional stasis bubble by the Amber Witch when the Time Bandit murdered our parents. One supervillain accidentally saved us from another. Funny, huh? Reggie and I were totally reconciled by then, and he came to visit last Christmas, wearing a hologram projector so he didn't look too young. The whole family was there. My wife, our kids, our first grandson, who was so young he didn't even know what all the fuss was about. Everybody. Reggie and I ran out to the store to get some eggnog, and the Amber Witch jumped us, trapped us in one of her phase-shifting crystals. By the time we escaped her prison dimension, we found ourselves in a sorry excuse for a branch of the multiverse, a world where nobody had ever heard of the aerialist, or of me, of course. Reggie didn't seem worried. He was practically a god, right? He would set things right, and we'd be opening presents with our loved ones by morning. Reggie did manage to get back in time and save Mom and Dad. But not me. I was just a baby at the time, and Reggie wasn't sure what year it was, so he didn't even know I'd been born yet. Didn't know I needed to be saved. So while he carried our gassed unconscious Mom and Dad out of the house and out of danger— he left sleeping baby me in the nursery. I got killed by one of the bandit's time bombs. It was too late, 
and Reggie couldn't go back in time again to save me without meeting himself, and apparently maintaining the integrity of the fabric of space-time is more important than saving my life and my family and... Sorry. Sorry, I got worked up. My brother's a god, sure, but not a god good enough to save his sister-in-law and niece and nephew. But I'm still here. I'm the original guy who never grew up. My life never happened. No wife, no kids, no career, no house by the lake. Reggie gave up his life to fight crime. He gave up my life, too, though. And that wasn't his to give. So there I was, life erased, wife with no memory of my existence, and married to another man. My only friend in the world, a brother so racked by guilt over what had happened that he could barely stand to look at me. He said I made his head hurt, because he had two sets of competing memories. One where he'd grown up with me for a big brother, one where he was an only child. Eventually, he just gave me a whole lot of money, and ran off to fight the next extranatural menace. So I did what anybody might do. I decided to kill myself. Except I couldn't. I tried. Pills, guns, jumping off high places, everything. Something always went wrong. Improbable ricochets. Sudden-onset stomach flus that made me puke up all the poison. Once, when I leaped off an overpass, I landed in the back of a truck full of goose-down pillows. That's when I started to figure it out. I wasn't allowed to die. Maybe since I'd already died when I was a kid, the universe sees me as an equation that's been balanced. Or maybe I'm just an outsider to this universe. Someone who doesn't belong. For whatever reason, the man who never grew up is also the man who can never die. So, I got an idea. I went to Reggie's place, down into his basement. There were lots of death traps in the way, sure, but what do I care about death traps? And stole some of his old stuff from the alien tech days. The eight-league boots, the zero-point energy ring. I swallowed a handful of the anti-grav modules, and sure, they're crazy radioactive, but once again, what do I care? I got all dressed up and went to rob a bank, and just let the teller push the silent alarm, and hung around until the authorities showed up and took me into custody and processed me. And that's where you guys come in. I know you aren't the feds. Please. I knew as soon as the cops... The real cops ran my DNA. It would pop a flag in some database, and the authorities would realize I shared an awful lot of genetic markers with samples left behind by the world-famous aerialist during his various bloody exploits. That, and the fact that I was using old-school aerialist tech, was going to be catnip to a certain kind of criminal mastermind. I knew your organization would come looking for me and get me into your clutches somehow. Pretending to be the FBI anti-vigilante task force was a pretty good ruse, though I'm sure you had to pay off a few cops to get me transferred into your facility. What do you call yourselves these days? The Revengers? The Aerialist Eradicators? You've had so many names. So many leaders. So many failures. Reggie thinks you guys are a joke. Trying to kill him for decades? A whole organization dedicated to murdering the aerialist and always getting your asses kicked. Don't look so scared, Mr. Interrogator. You think this is some trick Reggie set up, right? A chance to wipe out the whole bushwhacking, backstabbing, assassinating lot of you? 
to get me into the belly of your beastly organization, and then Reggie comes flying in to save me? Screw that. I'm the one who wanted to find you. Because I want to show you how it's done. My little brother used to be family, and a hero elevated by the sweat of his brow. Now he's half an alien, doesn't even train anymore, and has the kind of conditional morality you usually see in people with borderline personality disorder. He should have died a long time ago. Like life died. Like I wish I could die. I didn't come to destroy your organization. I came to run it. Put me in charge. I know where the aerialist lives. I know where he sleeps. When he sleeps, which isn't often. I can't take my brother out by myself, not with his few remnants of technology. He's just better than me. But with a bunch of you backing me up, second-string supervillains, sure, but with some talents I can use, we might win. And if we don't? If he kills you all? Well, I don't die. My brother will make more enemies, and they'll take up the mantle of the aerialist Avengers, or whatever you guys are called this week, and they'll help me try again. You might all die this time out, but take the long view. I'll get the aerialist eventually. I'll show him he's not a god, no matter how much he plays god. I'll be the one villain he can't bring himself to kill, the mistake from his past he can never make right, his ultimate nemesis. I'll knock him out of the sky. And that was our story. I don't think this one needs a lot of analysis. It's actually one of the things I really admire about Tim Pratt's stories. That his plots are so clear, so simple. Everything that needs to be explained is explained in a minimum of words. And yet, there's so much in them. It's like boating over a very clear, very calm lake. So clear you think you can see the bottom. Only to realize that it's deeper than you thought it was. And you remember hearing that there are caves and you think, maybe there is no bottom at all. That's what I think of when I think of Tim Pratt's work. Or maybe I just miss scuba diving in Florida. But we'll go with Tim Pratt. And hey, if you don't have time to read his work, you can get all four of the Marla Mason novels in unabridged audiobook form at audible.com. Yes, this is our commercial segue. I mentioned Tim's Marla Mason series in the intro. He writes them as T.A. Pratt, and I'll confess, this is the only urban fantasy series I really follow. I've tried a few others. This is the one that clicks for me. Marla's a powerful sorceress who's responsible for keeping law and order in her city. Or at least order. Or at least not total chaos. She's not evil, certainly, but you can't call her one of the good guys so much as pragmatic. Cross Dirty Harry with Lord Vetinari with Uma Thurman's character from Kill Bill, and you've got Marla Mason. And if that works for you, try one for free at audible.com. Just sign up for their free trial at audible.com slash escapepodsff. Even if you cancel the trial, the book is yours to keep. Once again, that URL is audible.com slash escapepodsff. And now, more administrative stuff. This one's important. I've talked before about expanding the Escape Artist team, about having smart, dedicated people in the right positions so that the work we're doing continues. This week we've made one of our biggest steps yet in that direction, and it's entirely about this podcast, Escape Pod. I'm very pleased to announce that Jeremiah Tolbert has, at my urging, accepted the position of managing editor of Escape Pod. You've heard some of Jeremiah's stories here. 
This My Body, the steampunk adventure Instead of a Loving Heart, and the very well-received Arties Aren't Stupid. He's also a veteran editor and podcaster. He's very well-connected with what I consider the new generation of writers. He's far more organized than I am, and he's very passionate about the genre and about helping people discover great stories. Now, just to be clear, this isn't me washing my hands of Escape Pod. I'll keep doing most of the hosting, I'll be very involved with story selection, and my vision of what this podcast should be still holds. But it's not a one-man show anymore. Jeremiah's making things happen. Already, he's gotten us caught up with email to the editor box, and the story submission backlog is finally coming under control. He really is managing the podcast, and he has my total trust in that. I hope you'll join me in welcoming him and thanking him for keeping Escape Pod on the tracks. Of course, by Escape Pod, I mean a production of Escape Artists Incorporated, which is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. It doesn't matter which continuity you're in, you can still share it all you like, and you still can't change it or sell it. All of the rights, powers, and alien artifacts are reserved by our authors. If you like this week's story, please tell a friend or blog about it. And if you really liked it, and you'd like to help us continue paying our authors, we hope you'll consider leaving a donation via the PayPal link at our site, escapepod.org. Also check out our sister podcasts. You can find the best in fantasy stories at podcastle.org and evocative horror at pseudopod.org. Our music is by permission of Daikaiju. You can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. Our special closing music... Come on, I just gotta. It's Skullcrusher Mountain by Jonathan Colton which is Creative Commons licensed, and you can find this and many other songs at jonathancolton.com. That was our show for this week. Our closing quotation is an old Hindu proverb. Help your brother's boat across, and your own will reach the shore. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun. Isn't it enough to know that I ruined a pony?
All up above the waves, my doomsday squad ignites the atmosphere. And all the fools who lead their foolish lives may find it quite explosive. Well, it won't mean half as much to me if I don't have you here. No, it isn't easy living here on Skullcrusher Mountain. Maybe you could cut me just a little slack Would it kill you to be civil? I've been patient, I've been gracious And this mountain is covered with wolves Hear them howling, my hungry children Maybe you should stay and have another drink And think about me and you Control 